Okay, what we're going to do tonight, we are walking through the book of Revelation, and we're going to look at Revelation 13. And remember, we're trying to say that Revelation is not here to conceal things. It's not hiding things. It's here to reveal. That's the name, right? And its agenda, according to Revelation 1, is not to scare you or confuse you. It really is to bring comfort and clarity. And tonight, Revelation 13, I hope, will bring clarity on how Satan, this real fallen being who is evil, who loves power, who hates Jesus, but has already been defeated by Jesus 2,000 years ago on the cross. We saw that last week. And so now, because he can't touch Jesus as a defeated foe, he hates the church because the church looks so much like Jesus. And so Revelation 13 through 18 is just a picture of how Satan wages war on the church, trying to cause as much damage for the rest of world history until Jesus comes back. And so Revelation 13 is going to say, though Satan is invisible, let me show you the visible ways that Satan is going to make war on Jesus' people. So let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, um, I know any time that uh, we start talking about Revelation, we start talking about Satan, we start talking about um, war, there are probably a thousand things... Um, that go up in people's heads. There's some people that, uh, that think it's quite silly that we're going to sit here in the year 2014 and talk about Satan. There's others who know all too real uh, the power of evil uh, in their own heart. Um, there's others who um, know that um, there's a lot of shame and a lot of guilt over things that we've thought or done. And so, Lord, would you uh, meet us in your word? Would you convince us of the truth of your word and the truth of Jesus Christ, the victorious king, um, who is bringing his kingdom now, uh, a kingdom of peace and righteousness and love and life? And may we see that in your son's name, I pray. Amen. All right, Revelation 13, starting in verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast." And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth that had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. 
It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak, and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is those who have not defiled themselves with the women, for they are virgins. It is those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God, it stands forever. Okay, so as Satan wages war in this, in, in this world, he knows his time is short and he's trying to cause as much damage as he can he uses these two figures as his visible tools. So that's how we're going to, we're going to see what is the sea beast, what is the land beast, what is the mark, and then what is the victorious resistance. First, what is this sea beast, right? You, we get left in chapter 12, if you were here two weeks ago, and dragon, uh, the Satan, the real person that hates Jesus, and he hates the church. He's making war on the church, and he's, in chapter 12 ends with him standing on the sea. And now, it's the same vision, out comes this beast. And, this, and that's telling you that this beast is going to be one of the visible ways that Satan tries to oppress God's people and tries to deceive and enslave those who are not yet Christians. That's what he's about. This... So this beast, whatever it is, it is, it is representative of the instrument that Satan will use throughout history to tempt, deceive, enslave, and intimidate people. So what is the beast? Like, what is this puppet? And there's a lot here. So I'm just going to pick one thing that I think the rest of the details uh, end up talking about. And it's in verse 2. It says that this beast looks like a leopard, a bear, and a lion. Now the first hearers of this letter who knew their Old Testament, when they heard a beast that was a leopard, a bear, and a lion, they all would have thought about Daniel 7. That's what Spencer read for us. Because in Daniel 7, there is this prophecy about these four beasts that are going to rise out of the sea, one that's a lion, one that's a leopard, and one that's a bear. And see, these images in Revelation, right, we keep saying this, they don't just come out of a vacuum. They come out of the Old Testament. If we use Scripture to interpret Scripture, it becomes clear. Because what Daniel saw, what he saw with these these four beasts, they were representative of these kingdoms, these evil empires that were coming that would reject the living God and oppress God's people. And for Daniel, that meant the coming empires of the Persians, the Babylonians, the Greeks under Alexander the Great. But now... 
As, 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 as people hear Revelation, they see all the beasts come together in this one... All animals come together in this one beast. So what does it mean? What does it mean when he sees one beast with all those features? It's a picture. It's a picture that all of world history, since Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, would be characterized by having political, evil empires that rise up. And through fear, through intimidation, through power, try to oppress the church. Try to make people compromise in following Jesus. And so that's what John sees. That history really will be characterized by different regimes, different kingdoms that try to persecute the people of God and through fear and intimidation try to keep people from Him. And sure enough, right, that's what world history shows us. For the first years of Revelation 13, when they heard this picture of the beast, they all would have thought Nero and the Roman Empire. And they were right. Nero and the Roman Empire, was, they were martyring Christians left and right. Nero would take Christians and cover them in tar and put them on a stake in his backyard to light up the parties and burn them. Like That's what's going on right now. But the beast is also representative of every political entity, every evil kingdom since Rome up until now that's tried to take the place of God and make people compromise their faith and their love and their obedience to Jesus. So yes, it's the Roman Empire. But it's also Chairman Mao and the Chinese government. And it's also Hitler. And it's, it is any government that through power, it's any entity that through power and control and fear and intimidation tries to make people compromise on following Jesus. And so that's it. On a broad level, that's what John sees. And that's what world history shows us. And honestly, if we weren't living in America and we were living in different parts of the world, or if we were living in almost any other era of world history, we wouldn't sit back and wonder who the beast was. Because open and violent persecution has just always been the norm for the majority of Christians. It just has. And the mortal wound, right, that you keep hearing about that's being healed and it seems like he keeps being resurrected, that just signals that the beast, that that evil, that empire will keep coming back. You think it's over with the Roman Empire and then it comes back. And then it comes back and it keeps coming back in different forms. So that's the, that's the general level. But, I, you know, if you're like me, you're in the United States, you're like, okay. I mean, what does that have to do with me? Well, on a specific level, the sea beast is representative of any system, any system in place that calls on you to compromise obedience. It calls on you to stop following Jesus, to stop taking him seriously if you're going to make it in this world. It tries to convince you that, no... You're going to lose if you follow Jesus. You'll be ruined. You'll be destroyed. And so it looks like, I hope this doesn't sound crazy, but it really does. Like it looks like, it looks like Lance Armstrong in the professional cycling industry. Like, do you remember this? I, mean, I think most of you would still be familiar. Right? Lance Armstrong defeated cancer, the most successful cyclist, I mean, in history. And up until recently, he... he he was able to manage this perception that he never cheated, that he never used illegal uh, you know, performance-enhancing drugs, and then it finally came out. And as it came out, the quotes and the stories, I mean, they were fascinating. 
And I was reading about it today. Here's what you begin to realize. This is how the system worked, right? To be a professional cyclist, just by sheer definition, you have to be a physical freak. Like, you have to be in the top 1% of physical health to even make it on the circuit. And everybody started saying this. They would finally make it on the circuit, and all of them would look and say, we're going to do this the right way. We're not going to cheat. And then they would say it would take just a month or so before they realized everybody else is cheating. Like, the only way that we won't lose our jobs or lose our sponsorship is if we compromise. And so everybody compromised. And there's this great quote from Tyler Hamilton, who was one of Lance Armstrong's teammates. Here's what he says. He said, one day I'm a normal person with a normal life. He said, and the next day I was standing on a street corner in Madrid with a secret phone and a hole in my arm, and I'm bleeding all over, hoping I don't get arrested. It was completely crazy, but it seemed like the only way at the time. That's the beast. It's a system that these bikers didn't even, like, they didn't create, right? They walked into it, but they got convinced that in order to survive, in order for me not to lose, I've got to compromise. I've got to cheat. And that's why the beast is alive and well, even at Mississippi State, even in the United States. Because anytime you come across a system that's telling you, you've got to compromise or you're going to be destroyed, it'll say things like this. If you ever stop, if you ever stop studying, there's simply too much to be work, work to be done. If you ever actually rest on the Sabbath, you'll fall behind. You'll fall behind. And your future will be ruined and you're finished. That's the beast. And some of you feel that. And you feel the proclamation of verse 4 where you say, who's like the beast? Who can fight against it? It feels like... It feels like it's in power. It feels like it's useless to fight against it. And so you just got to keep going. It's why, it's why some of you lie. You lie to your parents about what your life is really like in college. And you refuse to tell your friends who you really are. Because for them to find out who you are in college, for him, them to really know, it feels like you lose. It feels like you lose reputation and you fall behind. And so you've got to keep lying. You've got to keep manipulating what people think of you. That's the demands of the beast. You say, I can't tell people the truth. That'll ruin me. It's the system that says, if I don't dress like this, if I don't act like this, I will be destroyed because I'll fall behind. And so all throughout, Satan, the dragon, he is this unseen person, but he has this very visible tool that wages war on the, on the, on the church and keeps people deceived because he just perverts society through institutions that deny God and imitate his power and say, you have to compromise or I'll destroy you. That's the sea beast. Secondly, there's this land beast, right? Verse 11 through 15. The second tool that he uses to tempt and deceive and enslave and intimidate is this beast that rises out of the earth. However, instead of this land beast being kind of a symbol of power and intimidation, it's a symbol of religious persuasion. He has an appearance of a lamb imitating Jesus. And the big key is later on in chapter 16 and chapter 19, this land beast will be called the false prophet. It's, he has religious language to him. 
And through his, through his work, through his speaking, he deceives people into what they worship. And so the land beast adds up to one thing. It's just false religion. And so John is saying that what's going to characterize world history from Jesus' first coming until he returns again is that all kinds of false religions will arise. That the first beast will come, come through the front door and try to intimidate you and oppress you. There'll be something ever so slight that comes from the inside to just deceive you and distort, and distort religion. Every false religion is serving the dragon. And so the big picture is what we've seen, right? And it's just true. All throughout history, there's always been t- these kind of covert attempts to undermine the gospel. The true message of Jesus and his full salvation that he won on the cross 2,000 years ago. It's why so, like so many of your New Testament books, those epistles that like Paul writes, the reason he writes them is because heresies were popping up in the church. And so he's going after them. He's guarding the true gospel. Because those false things lead you to destruction. Because they won't lead you to Jesus. And so the land, be- the land beast, is, it's representative of any religion. Any religion that says you don't have to have only Jesus. So yes, the land beast, it's Islam... It's Buddhism, it's Hinduism, it's Mormonism, it's a hundred more. It's anything that says, you don't just have to have Jesus and you'll be okay. But on a specific level, it also is anything that ever so slightly tries to distort the gospel message. The land beast just... If the, if, if the sea beast perverts society, the land beast prefer, perverts Christianity. And the reason that these beasts are so good at it is because they're counterfeit. They look and feel so much like the real thing. But they're counterfeit. They're duping you. And so, and so the land beast is something that's going to look and kind of feel like Christianity. But it's wrong. And it'll lead you to a path of destruction. So here's what it is. Anything, anything that tells you to find hope and find safety and find life in a system, even a system that has Jesus sprinkled in, that is calling you to find hope and salvation in something besides the grace of Jesus Christ and His life on your behalf and His death. And that's the beast from the land. And so it's the beast from the land, when you're told or you feel this, that what's going to make me okay with the God of this universe is, yes, Jesus, but also my obedience. That somehow, yes, I know I need Jesus, but I've also just, I've got to get my life cleaned up. That's it. Like, that's the land beast. It's really about you. It's the system. It's a false religion. When you... I'll be careful I'll say this. Look, we'll use a parenting as an example. When you're told as a parent, this is a Christian way of parenting, and you're told this, if you do these ten things, your kid's going to turn out like it's supposed to. And they'll sprinkle Jesus in. I'm telling you, that's the false gospel. Because you're relying on a system instead of on the desperate need of Jesus 
and the person and work of Him. It's the land beast. It's the land beast that says, here's the Christian way of dating. If you'll just do these five things as you pursue a guy or a girl, it's going to turn out this way. Jesus gets sprinkled in, but you end up trusting a system and your control rather than the person and work of Jesus. And I'm telling you, and I say this with care, some of you are so mad because you've done things so right and things still haven't turned out. And you're saying, what in the world? And Jesus is graciously saying, I'm enough. Like, I'm enough. It really is about me. I can hold you. I can sustain you. I can give you life. And it's the land beast when you say, it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter how I live. I can call myself a Christian. And that's the land, because that's a false Jesus. Jesus being the only one means he's your king as well. And he really changes your life. And so that's the sea beast. That's the land beast. What's the mark? It's verse 16 through 18, this 666. It says, The land beast marks everyone on their hand or their forehead with the name of the beast, or the name of the beast is also representative of this number 666. So what is the number 666, right? What is it? Here's something interesting. If you take the name Ole Miss and you flip it, I'm just kidding. Um, I had to like, I had to like lighten it up a little bit. Um, some of you were like, yes. Um, okay. Scratch. A joke for people's approval. Um, okay. Uh, look. Here's the deal. In my opinion, and, and feel free to read more, like 666 is just like almost every other number in Revelation. It's symbolic. It's representative. Numbers in Revelation are supposed to, supposed to make an unseen reality make sense to you. Right? So the number 144,000, which we already saw in Revelation 7, and which we see again in Revelation 14, that's just simply the number for all of God's people. And so the unseen reality that there's a multitude that no man can number from every tribe, tongue, and, and number, Revelation says it's 144,000, right? Or 42 months, which we saw here, or three and a half years. That is just, that's the number so that you and I can get it. This, it's going to characterize just church history until Jesus comes back. It's always 42 months. It's always three and a half years. And 666 is simply the number... Of the beast. It's the number of false religion. Why? My best shot is because, because seven's the number of perfection. We've seen that, right? It's the number of completeness. And so six, it's just always falling short. And anytime you want to emphasize something, you say it three times, right? When you saw this, when the saints cry, they say, holy, holy, holy. So this is saying six, six, six. This is the false religion is represented by the number of complete incompleteness. It just always falls short. Always. It's completely incomplete. And so just like how 144,000 effectively represents all God's people throughout history, 666 represents the continual missing the mark, the continual falling short of false religions. Because it tries to give you something that only the Lord of this universe can give you. 
And this is why, here you go, the mark of false religion is always insecurity. Always. Because you realize you're, it's never enough. You're never really sure if you're okay with God. You always wonder if you've done enough. You've always wondered if you've been good enough, if you've had enough faith, if you've been sincere enough, if I've done the right things. Because false religion says it's about what you, about what you do. And you just find yourself always falling short. And you just feel incomplete. But the mark itself, don't miss what it's saying. It's not just there to try to like figure out something. It's a display of who you follow, of who you worship, of who owns you. Right? Did you see this? In chapter 14, all the people of God, they're also marked on their forehead with the name of the Father, of God the Father. That doesn't mean, right, that Christians right now have the name Father written on our foreheads, right? But why do we do that with the beast? Like, why do people say, well, I think it's going to be some weird barcode that appears on your arm that says 666. Like, we know the mark here of Christians just means that you're owned by the Father. And that therefore your life displays to the world who the Father is. That as you live a life of repentance and faith and sacrifice and grace... You're displaying the mark that you're owned by the Lord. And that's the point. The point is this. No one is neutral. No one. Everyone worships or follows someone or something. Everybody is looking for something to provide safety and security and meaning and to take away fear. The question is not, are you marked? The question is, whose mark are you wearing? Like, who owns you? You will always know what you worship by what you fear. By what you fear losing. And and that's how the beast works. It threatens to take away the things that you really worship. And so you keep clamoring after it. And it promises safety and security, but it can't deliver. And that brings to the final point. Where then is the hope? Like, what does life amidst this kind of seemingly powerful two beasts that you end up saying, who can fight against this? Well, you see people that are fighting against it. And the crazy thing is they're not actually fighting. They're singing. And they're suffering. And that's the picture of the victorious resistance. They don't fall for the counterfeit. And God's people are just always characterized by two things. You suffer and you sing. Right? In verse 9 and 10, they suffer. It says, If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here's the call of the endurance of the faith of the saints. What this is saying is, those who are owned and loved and know the forgiveness of God the Father, Jesus the Son, Holy Spirit, the way that they fight in this world is they just suffer. And it looks weak. They lose power. They lose control instead of compromising. They lose reputation. They lose face. Why? Because they know the victory has already been won. It's over. Jesus won the battle 2,000 years ago. And the one thing that I... The one thing that I should figure is separation from the God of this universe, it was taken away. 
Jesus took it on a 2,000 years ago on a cross. And so I can suffer. I can lose things that are, they're good. It hurts to lose those things. But it doesn't have to destroy you. So um, last spring when um, our group kind of went back to Sacred Road, uh, which is this, on this Indian reservation, I heard the uh, pastor out there tell this illustration that I'm now going to shamelessly steal. And he talked about how, uh, he one time heard the story about how um, the F- FBI agents who were in the, ca- the kind of counterfeit business, right, who were out there trying to um, identify counterfeit money, he said how FBI agents are trained is they never handle counterfeit money. He said for weeks and months, all they do is hold the real thing. They sniff it, they smell it, they hold it, they feel the weight of it, they touch it. So that when the counterfeit shows up, they might not can tell you exactly why it's counterfeit, they just say, that's not the real thing. I've touched it, i felt it, I know. The best way to identify the counterfeit is to know the real thing. And the only way to see the deception of the beast, it's not to just figure out all of its forms and know it so well. The way to not be duped is to know the real thing and experience the real thing. you got to know the real Jesus. That real safety and real life and real forgiveness, it really is found in Him. And that's why they sing. They just sing. Who sings in a war? People who knows it's over. They sing because they just know we just got to keep knowing the real thing. We need to proclaim it to the world. We need to sing it to each other. We need to sit under the teaching of God's Word. We need to experience it. Here you go with each other as we forgive each other. As like we're patient with each other. As we try to sacrifice and serve each other. Let's say that's how you'll keep knowing it's real. And some of you out here, I know this, you're struggling to believe that Jesus is real and that He really loves you. Yet if you're honest, you'll look around and you'll say, your most faithful friends and the people who love you best are Christians. And that's it. You're experiencing the real thing. See it. And then the more and more you know it, the more and more you know the real thing, you, you might not be able to say exactly what the beast is, you might not can explain the counterfeit, but you can just say, I, that just doesn't feel like Jesus. That doesn't feel right. That's not the way he works. And so you, you'll be tempted to, to not forgive your parents or, 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 or to not forgive your friend that really hurt you. And you're going to want to hold on to that sin that was done against you. Because, man, it, man, I can make him pay for that. But it won't feel right. Because you realize I'm trying to hold on to power. I'm trying to hold on to control. That just doesn't feel like Jesus. And so you start losing power and you start forgiving because you realize only Jesus can give what you're trying to cling to. And I'm, I'm not forgiving people because I'm just trusting myself and trying to control everything. That's the real thing. The real thing is salvation by grace alone. That's it. The real thing is that the real God came to this earth and on a good Friday, here's what happens. The satanic, dragon-manipulated beast called the Roman government and Pontius Pilate says to Jesus, away with you, I'm going to destroy you. And then the satanic, manipulated land beast called the Pharisaic religion says, crucify him. And they hang him on a cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as he dies, this is why he's the real thing. 
Because he loses power. And he appears to lose. And he loses comfort. And he loses security. And he loses the love of his Father. So that he can have you. So that you can be his. So that he can heal you and you can be safe. That's the real thing. The beast can't heal you. The beast will not love you. The beast can't change you. It will not sacrifice for you. All it will say is it will demand more and more. But Jesus is different. He says, I'll hand you a complete salvation that is finished. A full righteousness and a full forgiveness. And it's so real and it's so secure that you, you really can start losing other things. You really can fall behind. And you can lose jobs. And you can, you can fall behind. You can appear to be defeated in the face of the beast. And be okay. Because you found life in the, in the only one that matters. And as we stand here secure in His love, His love is so real and so firm that we suffer and we sing. And don't you just love this picture? That singing becomes like a loud thunder, a roar of waters, and the kingdom keeps going. The kingdom keeps going and people will be changed if you're a Christian as you just sing and you suffer. Because that holds up the real God and it changes the world. I'll just end with this question. What if this is true? Like what if there is a love and a sacrifice that was so real that it actually made you sing and you could suffer? Wouldn't that be worth coming to? Let's pray. Father, we... um, we do. We thank you for the book of Revelation. This is a, this is a uh, hard and difficult... It's a, it's a weird passage. But Lord, you tell us that it is for, uh, for revealing, not for concealing. And so I pray that by your Spirit, you would unmask the lies of the counterfeit gods. Things that try to call us to, to compromise Jesus, to preserve, to preserve power and control and, and safety. Lord, that's only going to happen if if we can just collapse in the arms of Jesus and realize that you, man, you, you delight in us and you love us and you're so proud that we're yours. And so help us to stand in Jesus' forgiveness and Jesus' righteousness. We'll sing. We really will. In your son's name I pray. Amen.